Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao. On Thursdays, I'm here at the Commonwealth Club in which we tape the uh, radio show for Progressive Voices with my co-host, John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club. Hey, Michelle. It's so nice to be down here in the uh, big girls' room. I'm going to call it the big <laughs> girls' room. We're normally up on the on the third floor, uh, although the third floor room has an amazing view. It does that, have the view of yeah. the bay and the bridge, yes. Yeah, but we're, we're down here in the important room, the big girls' room, and that's because <laughs> we have an important guest in which we'll talk a whole lot about LGBTQ issues, politics, he, when he was elected, was one of the youngest mayors uh, in the country, definitely has made history as one of the youngest Asian American mayors and uh, one of the youngest out LGBTQ mayors. And uh, now he serves as assembly member for his district, and I believe it's District 28. Let's welcome Evan Lowe to the program. Evan, welcome. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. This is the first time I actually get to sit and talk to you rather than listen to you. Um, so it's tradition on this show that you share a coming out story. And I mentioned to you before we got started that you could be gay first here today. <laughs> um, so the coming out story. Yeah. Um, uh, there was not necessarily a good textbook way to do it. Um, this was back in 2004. Uh, when the president of the United States also was engaged on talking about a uh, national constitutional amendment to make marriage between a man and a woman, which would require ratification of two-thirds of the states. Right. Um, so it was not an easy time to be at. Uh, we did not have a wide variety of the Internet back then. Uh, the, didn't, I didn't have any friends, role models that I could look up to uh, during this time. But what happened was I ran for office first, and this was back in 2004. And I remember I was at a political fundraiser that I was having, and there was a reporter who was going around to the different individuals in the room and saying, why are you supporting Evan Lowe? Some people say, well, we need a, a breath of fresh air. And then the next person said, well, we need the, he'd be the first person of color to be elected in the city's history. Wonderful. And then the next person said, well, he'd be the first openly gay person to be elected to the city council. Uh, I was not out at that time. <laughs> and like I said, I did not have a sense of identity or coming out or who, what it was. It was a different time. And of course, the next day in the paper, it said, sure. Evan Lowe, young, Chinese-American, 21 years old, openly gay, runs for city council. Wow. And uh, uh, my heart uh, just, just dropped. Uh, I was nervous as heck because my parents, I was not out to my parents and my family. Oh my. And um, I was actually mad at the reporter because I said, would you have said about my opponent, 76-year-old Irish-American openly heterosexual runs for city council? You wouldn't do the same thing. Um, but yet this was sensationalism. Um, so I had to tell my parents uh, first and foremost. And uh, my, my father was very loving and uh, my mother was very loving as well too. But uh, it was very sloppy at how that came about. But uh, sort of just sink or swim in, in that yeah. situation. Oh, yeah. But when they make the movie of your life, that's going to be a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like, uh, I guess, you know, an indirect way of outing you uh, in a lot of ways. Um, Do you think it was malicious at all or just kind of yeah. going for the... Oh, I think it was just a sensationalism of a story that it was a unique characteristic um, of, of a candidate running uh, that might connect with other individuals. It tells a story, perhaps, about a candidate. Uh, certainly at the time, I, I felt that it was um, not uh, conducive to what I wanted to accomplish or achieve. In other words, what, what about these attributes has anything to do with that of uh, protection of public safety or funding of our roads and our infrastructure or water or sanitation or any things that city council members really focus on. But yet it was uh, one aspect of, of myself, which now I can actually say that uh, does play a key role into uh, yeah. lawmaking. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, once this was then out there, uh, what did it play any role in the election or did vo most voters say, yeah, we're interested in what you're going to do for the roads and that kind of stuff? Oh, I got all kinds of hate mail. This, again, was really? back in 2004, wow. a different time. Uh, I got hate mail saying we wanted American interests, not Chinese interests, uh, businesses in English, not in Chinese. Um, are you going to bring the gay agenda to, uh, to the city of Campbell? 
And the strange thing is I'm fourth generation Californian speaking more Spanish than I do Chinese. And so it's two generations more native to my community than uh, many of the uh, sitting elected officials. But yet I was seen as a perpetual foreigner. You should so have, you should have written that? back in Chinese. Though. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been, if, I, if, I, if I knew how to, I could write back in Spanish perhaps. <laughs> well, right. you know, Google Translate. Google do that. Who knows if it's actual... Chinese. Or I should have responded in gay, gay talk. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. well, it, I was, uh, you know, surprised, not surprised, but um, I laughed at an article that you had talked about uh, certain people's responses and people saying, are you going to choke us with a gay parade? And I'm like, a gay parade in Campbell is an awesome idea. <laughs> uh, but continuing on in, in getting to know you, you meant, because it all somewhat ties into the policy work that you're involved with now, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear just kind of what it was like to, to grow up in the South Bay, right? Uh, San Jose, born, not necessarily raised because you moved to Campbell. And I've read articles in which your father has openly talked about, you know, the first time he remembered or recognized that you would have a career in politics and being a community guy versus a kid he was trying to get into sports. Yeah, it's uh, my father is an optometrist. Uh, and so like a good Chinese boy, I was supposed to become a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer. And I didn't do that. I did politics. And sort of in the Asian community, politics is not really an, an area that you typically go into. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I just came back from a conference of, uh, referred to as the National Conference of State Legislatures, uh, state legislators throughout the entire nation. And when you t take a look at sort of the Asian caucus, and we said, okay, how many were actually there? Um, you, you see far few between. And of course, of LGBT uh, members, is it's that much smaller. So we need to do a, a significant amount of work and representing the communities that we come from. Uh, but my father instilled those values of public service in me at, at a young age. And I think it's very important as we talk about while in, in a capitalist society, what do we do to advance the interests of each other? In other words, how are we interconnected for each other's success? How is Evan Lowe in, invested in Michelle's success? How are, is Michelle invested in my success and vice versa uh, in these different ways? And that's where I think the, the narrative should be at right now, the call to service or civic engagement. And if you look at the voting population and the voter turnout of uh, previous elections, even in the state of California, it is, it is significantly low in terms of the type of uh, engagement that we need to see. As a, a LGBTQ person growing up in your adolescent years, I mean, you'd talked about, you know, perusing books or going to the bookstore and kind of connecting with, you know, gay books. And so um, when did you when did it hit you that you're gay or or, you know, that you're different? I mean, for many of us, like, for example, myself, I'll just share it. I grew up watching yeah, soap operas at General Hospital, and I recognized that I really was drawn to Susan Lucci. So, <laughs> <laughs> what was that for you, or who, you know, a moment? I got to say, growing up in the Bay Area, I did not have a sense of identity with respect really? to L what it yeah. meant to be LGBT. I didn't know anyone openly gay. There was no open gay family members. I didn't see one on TV. No one that I could connect or relate to. Wow. And in the Asian community, it was sort of, it's even worse. It's the, the Chinese community, like, oh, there are no gay Chinese people. That, that doesn't exist. We don't talk about that. So the level of exposure was quite different back then. And it wasn't until I remember uh, I was in class at a community college and someone had the Advocate magazine on their desk. And um, there were attractive photos of, of individuals on that, on that magazine. And I um, tried to do more research and find out what that was about. Oftentimes to also talk about uh, wandering around aimlessly in Barnes and Noble and um, going through the gay and lesbian section pretending I was lost to try to find out what this <laughs> meant um, because no one talked about it. And yeah. maybe the exposure that we saw was just on TV and sensationalism of gay pride um, and um, what individuals knew about the, the AIDS epidemic. Uh, so having a sense of what that meant uh, was very challenging and difficult. So it was sort of a self-exploration. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that definitely connects and resonates with um, you know, API LGBTQ for sure. John. So you won your city council race, right? And then how long after that before you decided to go for the mayor's seat? You know, I lost in 2004. Oh, I'm sorry. I lost the first time. Okay. But thank you for bring, reminding me about that loss. <laughs> uh, hurts how painful, terrible. How painful, much did it hurt? <laughs> yeah, painful memories. Uh, I lost in 2004 the first time. Uh, and I was 21. And then I ran again uh, two years later. 
uh, in 2006 okay. and was successful that time around. Okay. And when did the mayors raise uh, Then uh, we, in many cities in the state of California, you have a, um, a rotation of the city council and the mayor. Oh, really? Okay. So that happened uh, back in, that happened in 2008-9, in which uh, I assume that role. Okay. Uh, how long does the mayor then serve in that role? Uh, typically for one year, and then I served again back in 2013, I think. And what was, you know, the people who had written you those nasty letters and said, oh, we don't want this, you know, Chinese person, this gay person who to be on our city council. When you were mayor, did you still get that kind of blowback from folks or had they kind of become accustomed to the fact that, oh, okay, we see what he's doing? Yeah, think about this. Um, during this time, there was an issue called Proposition 8, a statewide measure that would verbatim eliminate the rights of same-sex couples to marry. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that in the state of California, eliminating the rights of anybody. But yes, that passed. Voters voted to eliminate the rights of the LGBT community. Uh, I remember when I was serving as vice mayor, uh, I went to the mayor's house at the time to do some preparation and meetings. Yeah. And I arrived at the mayor's home, and I saw not one, but two yes on Proposition 8 signs on her home, which, was, again, demonstrated her support as a sitting mayor, public official, to eliminate my rights, the, her vice mayor's rights. And I, and I found that such a, a, a difficult time to deal with, and it was a very lonely time, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about what it, what it meant to be mayor, I also tell this story why now it is very important that we demonstrate the, the, the talents of our community of identity. Uh, when I served as mayor, I received a letter from the Red Cross uh, called the uh, Summer Blood Challenge. During the summertime, many families are out and about, and so people aren't necessarily regularly in the routine of donating blood, so people are away. Mm -hmm. So they said, issued a challenge to mayors. Mayors, could you in the Silicon Valley region do a challenge and host blood drives and kind of uh, host that and, and, and get blood donations? And again, it was a moment in time where it's just, I started to sweat. I remember I opened the letter and I started to sweat because as mayor of a city, I could host a blood drive on city hall property, but I couldn't donate blood myself right. because the FDA, there's an FDA ban since 1983, um, a lifetime ban on gay men donating blood. And so I was struck by saying, do I prohibit discriminatory practices on public property, which we have a policy in place to do so, or do we host the blood drive and also bring light to these issues? Uh, we eventually hosted the blood drive and we, and we and, um, sought out an opportunity to highlight these issues and create public support against that. Yeah. Or when I, I host the Boy Scouts, they come in to earn their merit badge. Mm -hmm. They meet with a public official. And one of the boys asked, were you also in Boy Scouts, Mr. Mayor? Is that how you became mayor? Of course, gay men were not allowed in Boy Scouts. Uh, and or to officiate a wedding. As, as mayor, we can sign documents and, and officiate weddings, but I couldn't get married myself. So there are a number of things that I think are important for us to be present, be involved, mm -hmm. and to demonstrate our, our, who we are as individuals so that it can think, well, this doesn't make sense. And how do we advance the interests of our community? You know, we, in fact, we were talking about this just earlier. The, the large numbers of people who think politics doesn't matter, it's all corrupt, it does not really affect my life anyway, either just totally upended or, or I want to ignore it or something like that. Not only have you devoted your professional life to it, but these topics you're talking about, I mean, these are things that are very much affected by what we do through our political system. What would you say to folks who do kind of think, oh, politics, that's just nothing. It's yeah, not and think about it. I am so fortunate. As a millennial, I'm fortunate. I stand on the shoulders of generations who have come before us that in which there was criminalization for being who they were. Mm -hmm. And so much has changed, but yet we have so much to do. Yeah. In fact, in a majority of states, you can still be discriminated based on your sexual orientation or to be denied service or hospital visitation rights or the issues of not being able to adopt. These are real issues or being subjected to a fraudulent issue of conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that you turn on the TV and you tell me that this doesn't matter or this will not impact you. And that's why when there's a march in the San Francisco airport, I'll go march in solidarity with the Muslim community. Because when you think about a ban, for example, talk about identity, the Chinese community was also impacted. 
1882, the Chinese right. Exclusion Act prevented yeah. migration from a geographic region to come to the United States. And you said, that's in 1882, that would never happen again. Well, in 2017 and today, the United States is doing the same damn thing. And we talk about the Women's March and that we actually have rights as to choose for ourselves, but you're seeing those issues being rolled back. And you see the March for Our Lives, you're seeing Gay Pride Movement. This will transcend all communities. Um, and that's what's important. That's what's so critical for all of us. And the issues that face the LGBT community faces all communities. Mm. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort. And when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Just listening to you, Evan, I now get like a good grasp of just how great you are in what you do. Uh, I mean, I've read some of the headlines and, and newspapers talking about um, how you've been so successful in getting bills p passed and doing it so in kind of like a bipartisan way and getting, you know, other people uh, who might not support you to support you. And so, you know, in my mind, I'm hearing you talk about this. I'm like, how does he do it? How does he talk to folks, you know, who aren't on the same team or that, you know, you've got to count the votes and, and get uh, change made or, you know, get what you want, get, the, get these bills signed. Well, let me tell you, I think there's a lot of us that stay in our own silos because it's comfortable to just stay in our own communities. And let me tell you a story about uh, a situation in which I was able to get support. Uh, I had a bill proposal to lower the voting age from 18 to 17 in order to capture young people in the classroom and instill a lifelong sense of learning and habitual voting. Um, and so there was a self-described arch-conservative Republican from Santee, kind of in San Diego County. And he's a Vietnam, Vietnam veteran, mm -hmm. uh, about 75 years old. Um, Caucasian, and so I said, um, his name is Assemblymember Randy Vopel, and I said, can I, can I come visit you in your district and take me to your favorite restaurant? So we went to a barbecue joint, and he served as mayor for a long period of time in Santee, and it was apparent because everyone knew him there, and he would pass out coins to kids and little boys who he uh, presented at their, at their um, baseball games. Yeah. Um, but I sat down with him, and we, we, we broke bread and just got to know each other. After that lunch, this was about a, a Thursday at about 2 p.m., he said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I have a few moments. He said, why don't you join me at my favorite redneck dive bar? And I said, uh, okay. Uh, so I joined him. And, of course, when we arrive at the bar, there are NRA bumper stickers and Trump bumper stickers everywhere. And I said, oh, goodness. <laughs> I started to get a little <laughs> nervous. But I go in there, and um, there are about 20 individuals and a lot of military folks because of the local base. Sure. But we had a, had a beverage, and we had a drink. And it was a good time to engage with people and just develop a, a common rapport. As I left, I said, Randy, um, I, I'm glad that we had this opportunity, but I expect you'll join me at the, the gay bars in San Francisco now as we go bar hopping. <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, I'll take you up on that. 
Fast forward to when the bill comes up for um, 18, lowering the voting age, mm -hmm. uh, the Republican uh, recommendation is to vote no. Uh, he puts up his microphone and speaks in support of the bill. And he says, I'm supporting this bill because as a Vietnam veteran, at 17, you could have died for your country. And I saw my entire platoon being slaughtered. So if you can die for a country, you should be able to vote. I urge an I vote for this measure. And it was based on, and he actually told me, he said, hey, all the Republicans are thinking I'm crazy and they, they're suggesting I'm not. But we developed a level of trust and rapport yeah. and we build off of that. And I think that's so important for us to be able to do. Um, and I've done so similarly with individuals uh, who are in opposition to a bill that I also have with respect to the conversion therapy. In fact, I just did that um, last week, meeting with religious community leaders who who frankly were very blatant and said, we thought you were the devil, um, but we see something a little different. It's, it's good to hear you're doing that. Uh, we were reminded of the, the power of that cross-border just kind of recognition of humanity with uh, the passing of Ron Dellums recently, um, because one of the things he was noted for was lifelong liberal, certainly, on, on the left wing of his party, yet he got into power and even when he controlled a, a committee, he always talked to the, Dem to the Republicans. And Tom DeLay, you know, at when, he, when uh, Dellums left Congress, DeLay, who was, of course, an arch-conservative Republican from Texas, we called him, you know, the consummate gentleman and, and just, you know, pretty much a perfect congressman because of that. He saw him as, as a human being, and we might not agree, but... You know, you do actually get stuff done. And it's one of those things that as public officials, we are grappled with the challenge, which is that oftentimes of these conversations, it's about compromise and working across the aisle, being bipartisan and trying right. to represent a wide variety of communities. But this, in this political rhetoric, there are times on, on both sides, on the left and the right, that said, do not compromise because they would translate that as compromising your values, that your principles have right. been compromised, when in fact, it's not, there's nuance to it. And it's important to take a look at it situationally about what that means and how to get things passed and how to build off of a collective support. Let's talk about LGBTQ issues very quickly. I mean, one uh, bill that y you've been talking a whole lot about is the um, bill to end paid conversion therapy. And it's easy to think, you know, California is so progressive. Like, I thought we passed, you know, laws banning conversion therapy long ago. But there's a difference as far as paid conversion therapy. Uh, as you may know, in 2012, the state of California passed a law that would ban conversion therapy for minors 18 and under. That was signed. Since 2012, 14 other states have also joined us in this regard and also passed similar legislation. Fast forward to where we are today. Uh, the bill that I have is to qualify conversion therapy as a fraudulent practice to cover adults as well. And this is a very narrow in scope under the Consumer Legal Remedies Act. So just as a consumer or a transaction that's made in terms of goods and services, if you're provided a service that is what you expect it to be, that is under, under the law. But if it is considered fraud, how do we identify what is considered fraud? Which is that if I tell you, for example, Michelle, that you drink this coffee and I'm going to sell it to you for a dollar, you will grow a foot taller. That is fraud because it would not work. You will not grow a foot taller uh, no matter how much you would like to. <laughs> to see it happen. But if I gave you this cup of coffee for free and told you a good f foot taller, that would be allowed under the law. And so this is what we're talking about, calling conversion therapy what it is, a fraudulent practice, and ensuring that we can protect individuals and hopefully can be a blueprint for the country and many other states as well. And how is that whole fight going? I've read some pretty heated debates on both sides of it. Yes, um, we've been fortunate to get bipartisan support with multiple Republicans supporting the bill. Including your San Diego friend? Uh, he unfortunately did not on this one, <laughs> but I did go to him on okay. it. Uh, but he said, no, absolutely, he would be scorned if he said he would do this uh, as well. But um, we've been fortunate from another San Diego Republican and a Bay Area Republican, so two Republicans actually supported it. Uh, it's now in, this, in the Senate, but um, the, the narrative has been captured in such that uh, this would ban the Bible. In other words, that um, folks in the religious community, uh, practitioners would say, well, you can be changed. Um, and... It's unfortunate because in public testimony, this is another observation, in public testimony, we had maybe about five minutes of people speaking in support of the bill. Mm -hmm. Only five minutes of people coming and saying, me too, I, I, me too, uh, who spoke in support of calling conversion therapy fraud. And in fact, we had over two hours 
of testimony of individuals speaking in opposition. You had buses coming up to the state capitol speaking in opposition. And it was such an eye-opening experience for him because when we talk about the LGBT movement, uh, I genuinely feel that we've also gotten complacent because we've had such great wins. And it's important to, to, to cite this issue, but also to look at the United States Supreme Court and the decisions that they are making that will roll back many of the protections that we've been putting in place at a state level. So again, a call of urgency, if you will. I love that you said that, that, you know, cause I kind of felt the same and, and then being part of the pride movement movement, yeah, you know, questioning myself in terms of complacency. Um, so I want to talk about immigration, especially in California. We have a lot of political leaders who are standing on a platform of standing proud, uh, you know, being a sanctuary state or, or sanctuary city, but the problems of immigration definitely impacts the LGBTQ community. I'd love to hear from you uh, as being an LGBTQ leader, a political leader, who is also, you had mentioned it earlier, um, being supportive of, you know, limiting, right? Limiting um, what the federal government is currently doing to the immigrant community. Are we doing the best that we can as a, as a state and even as a region? Yes. Uh, well, as you may know, we in the state of California have passed laws uh, that are the strictest laws and to maintain the values that we care about. To be inclusive, we build bridges, not walls. And that is reflected in the bills that we have passed, which is no cooperation uh, with the federal government uh, on these raids uh, when we're going after people for no fault of their own, whether it be in places of worship and schools or a public gathering. Uh, that is not something that we will support. Mm -hmm. There's the distinction also, though, if, that, if there's an individual who has committed a serious crime, that there is an opportunity to engage <laughs> on that Co cooperation, but we should not be going into uh, raids uh, for no fault of individuals on their own. The reality is this, just as we talk about the intersectionality of LGBT and myself as API, we all have come to this experience. My family were pa paper sons, and that refers to the fires that happened that burned down all the immigration documents in uh, California. Uh, and so many of the individuals who have come, including my, my family, uh, came through the uh, Angel Island and had to come up with an opportunity to figure out how they could become uh, citizens in this country too. So the experiences should not be lost. That's why the historical context is, is so important for us to remember our history so that we repeat them because we're seeing patterns of that being repeated. And oh, by the way, this protectionist view of those that are in opposition to say that, well, now that I have it, others shouldn't have it. But if you track back for the history of many other families and individuals, you'll find similar stories as well. Uh, but we are doing everything that we possibly can to making sure that we demonstrate the courage of our convictions and being a very inclusive society and remembering that historical context. Thank you. John? Oh, I mean, this, that's just one topic in which California is kind of, you know, the state of resistance, if you will, to the Trump administration. But, uh, you know, that administration is going after California on a number of things. They just lost a case, I guess, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on denying money to cities that were sanctuary cities. But um, they're also going after our um, the mileage issues, uh, you know, environmental things. How much do you think, I mean, how strong do you think California and other states that uh, do want to, you know, stand up against the Trump administration, how strong do you think they are? I mean, can they, can they last another two years and, and defend their people and their policies? Um, will they get worn down? I mean, what, give, give your sense of the, the state, if you will, of the state resistance movement. Yeah, think about just think about how absurd that this this notion is, which is that uh, the Trump administration has specifically targeted California on our on our pocketbooks. In fact, I was meeting with the California Society of CPAs, tax preparers, and they talked about how yes, in fact, indeed, uh, the federal administration is targeting uh, states like California and hitting us where it hurts. Or even we're talking about the tariffs that have occurred uh, with China and that having an impact on import and export. We are a large agricultural community. And so when you think about the issues in the areas of Fresno and Bakersfield and other places, how this does not fundamentally hurt uh, other communities who are, and individuals who identify as Republican. So if you are Republican in the state of California, how can you possibly not be in opposition on a wide variety of different measures mm -hmm. when it hits you not only perhaps on your philosophy, on your political ideology, but specifically your pocketbook right. and your livelihood? The number two Republican in Congress uh, is from California, and yet 
they seem to just kowtow and placate to the Trump administration. So therefore, in the absence of their uh, resistance, uh, that is where the state of California is trying to do what we can. And that's where our attorney general has been very litigious and has sued on, I think, over 50 different occasions on various measures to ensure the state's rights. Mm -hmm. You know, that's oftentimes talks about uh, an issue uh, that you hear from a conservative angle. But uh, you find that now that's the conversation that we're also taking a look at as well. Speaking of uh, financials and, you know, hitting them where it hurts, I mean, certain immigrant rights advocates are going down the road of trying to cancel these detention centers that are popping up across the state uh, in California. I mean, in Richmond, they were successful in Richmond, the city, canceling a detention center's contract there. What are your thoughts about this specific strategy in terms of canceling these contracts and getting rid of these private detention centers. Well, it's important that when we as a state demonstrate who we are as people and that we will not cooperate with the federal government when they're going after our values and our people that are, again, for separation of families and doing no fault of their own, trying to obtain the California an American dream, just like everyone else. Each of us, all of our families have immigrated and have tried to attain the same American California dream. And it's hard and difficult enough to even survive as we sit here in San Francisco. Even if you do have, even if you are naturalized and if you do have U.S. citizenship, how difficult it is just to survive and provide for your families. So how dare we not allow for an environment that helps people thrive. And in fact, we're setting up people for failure, not for success. And that's where we need to fight against where we can on the, whether or not it's detention centers and other areas in which they're going after people who make us the diverse community that we are in the state of California. We got a little bit of time. And of course, we want to leave some time for our audience to ask questions, um, ask Evan questions. So I think, uh, I think we'll do that. So then we'll come back to John and I um, with uh, 10 minutes left. I think it's on. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone has a question they want to ask. Hi, Evan. Hi, Michelle. Hey. Um, can you just say a little more how you respond to the critics of the sexual orientation change bill? Um, and there, is there any legitimate concern that First Amendment would be violated by it, that the sale of a book, for example, would be prohibited, maybe even religious materials um, that talk about sexuality. Say more about how you are responding to those criticisms. Sure. Yeah, if you look at the bill itself in terms of its language, it only refers to the sale or advertising of change piracy services, uh, which is that of that you can be changed, that we can guarantee an outcome under a financial transaction. So this, this simply, simply the sale of a book uh, is not uh, prohibited under this bill. You can imagine how that would not, I mean, just in basic common sense, that would not um, muster uh, the courts, and neither is the legislative intent. Additionally, in when courts take a look at various cases, they'll look at legislative intent and the conversations and the, the rhetoric um, that we make as legislators as to factoring in the, what actually wants to occur. So it, it is absolutely not the, the banning of the Bible or goods or of, of this nature, but it's what's happened, unfortunately, is that it's gone out into the social media blogs and that people are just uh, coming up to this to this sensationalism that that's what it's about, when in fact it has nothing to do with uh, that book, but it's actually that of the service of advertising. In addition, we also want to make mention that you can still practice conversion therapy just so as long as there's not a charge. Evan, you said growing up you didn't have any role models that you saw that were gay or Chinese-American and Asians, and you clearly right now are a role model for many young, both Asian-American as well as gay and, and gay Asian-Americans. What, what would you say to them? Um, what is your message to them today? Well, well, similarly, I mean, Ignatius, I'm very sincere when I say that, too, that I, uh, we all collectively do it together. And so I want to acknowledge the work that you do um, in making sure that we have an inclusive community as well. And what I meant by that, what, what I think is, I appreciate that because there's actually context to it. There were many individuals who were working to advance these interests. But just growing up, I was not aware of them, and it was not visible to me. We did not, as I mentioned, did not have the advent of, of social media or the internet. Uh, the pagers were just coming online. Uh, so we didn't have that. And so what I think is important is that um, we speak out and we're, we're proud of who we are. 
and it's a it's a it's a process and um we need to be vocal and visible as much as possible. And so your question was about what do we say to those individuals who are looking to uh, be visible? Is that what your question was? Um, be involved in various entities and communities. We don't all need to be that politician or being in the forefront of, of the fight. Uh, but be present in our respective communities. If you are LGBT, show up at the Women's March. Show up at the, the airport, show up at the March for Our Lives, show up at immigration rights acts so that people can just say, well, you're just like everybody else. This sexual orientation and sexual identity is just one aspect of your life. Um, but I think that's how we change hearts and minds uh, of people slowly, slowly, slowly. Well, just to add to that, do you have in, like now? So obviously now you're super gay and there are a lot of, of <laughs> LGBTQ people that can be that for you. So do you have any folks that you could call out that you look up to or? Yeah, I think, I think even within the LGBT movement, um, there is work to be done in terms of representing and reflecting a wide array of people and making sure that the LGBTQ and everything in between is well reflected and involves so that when I go to LGBT national groups too, and nations I think can can also say the same thing. There are only a handful of API uh, mm -hmm. members of the LGBT community that are active in this realm, or people of color, or women. Uh, so we also need to be as um, re reflective as possible to be critical of ourselves to try and create an inclusive environment. As we sit here in San Francisco, just a side note, it is crazy to me. Uh, there are two main constituencies and in, in political constituencies in San Francisco that are required to, to really excel in public service, uh, which is that of the Asian Islander community and the LGBT community. So if you can find an API LGBT candidate, perhaps then you can have the first openly LGBT mayor uh, in the city of San Francisco. Who knows? But uh, it's something that I know I'd be proud to see. Uh, <clears throat> I I have a different perspective, and I don't actually have a question, but I wanted to, to give you a little context. You came out when you were 21-ish. I was 40 when I came out to myself. Mm -hmm. That was a different era. It is so encouraging to me to hear you talk about how much change we've managed to make in those intervening years. I participated in most of those marches, and I still do, even though I'm, you know, <laughs> really up there in the years. I wanted to say thank you for being who you are and being public about it. It's important to those who are listening to us to know how much we've changed. Well, I thank you very much uh, for your courage as well. We all have our own journeys and our own timeline, and um, that's why I feel like it's... Um, an obligation that I have because I am so fortunate that I can frankly feel free to walk around and be who I am without the fear of persecution or being killed as there are many places in other countries and other, other regions. But let us not be complacent because you see stories percolate every day about someone being murdered, um, being ostracized for being who they are. And so it's our collective obligation to ensure that we can advance that, those interests for everybody. And um, we can just be celebrated for who we are. But I'll tell you again, as I thought we were in 2018 and I introduced that bill on, on conversion therapy, I can't tell you how much hate mail uh, I have received um, from people. And again, those busloads of Californians, not just in the Central Valley, but here in the Bay Area, busloads who have written and called an onslaught of outreach and opposition to this. So the challenges that we face are still very real. So let us um, be as interconnected to communities as possible and build off of the successes that we've made. Thank you. Hi there. Um, you got engaged in politics at a really young age. I'm just curious what prompted you to take that first step into running for city council member at 21? And um, kind of a broader question, how do we engage more young people to engage in politics uh, today? Even just getting them to the voting booth, apparently about half of 18 to 24 year olds don't vote. Mm -hmm. So any personal methods that you've used? 
Yes. Uh, you know, I got involved because I was angry. <laughs> I was angry in terms of my identity as an Asian Pacific Islander first. Um, again, I was seen as a perpetual foreigner, something I, I'm fourth generation, but yet I'm not truly American. I had to demonstrate my patriotism and love of this country. There was also an issue at this time uh, with Abercrombie and Fitch. Abercrombie and Fitch had these racist depictions of these T-shirts uh, of the Asian community, uh, citing uh, signage of, of phrases like two uh, Wongs make it white, uh, W-H-I-T, and it showed laundry, Asians in laundry mats with very um, discriminatory uh, images uh, of, of depictions. And so um, a number of students, I was a student at the time, we protested uh, at the various malls of Abercrombie and Fitch and put little slips in their clothes, and we got kicked out, and I thought I was in trouble because I was going to go to jail, but it was just mall security, and it was such an exhilarating experience that I said, oh, let's go to the next mall and do it again. Um, but that was sort of my first entree into just activism. There, at the same time, there was a, a petition on a gentleman by the name of Wen Ho Lee, who was an engineer and a scientist who was thought to be a spy. And in fact, he was, he was an American and he was actually deemed to not be a spy. So the challenges facing one community, and then I, as I explored my identity, I found this other, move, uh, this other community and said, oh, there's discriminatory practices and uh, injustices in the LGBT community, I also want to be active in part of that too. And then of course, when you get into part of that, then you get into just public service in general and talk about the basic fundamental inequities that exist in the society. And if we don't have love of each other as basic human beings, how can we even tackle the issues of affordable housing or healthcare or public safety or any of the other issues? Um, but I got involved predominantly because I didn't see anybody that I felt represented my values or interest. Um, and as a, a younger person, I felt that th those issues were being lost. And so that's how I got involved. And so how do we get more people involved? I think it is uh, by the internships and mentoring of other people by saying, again, not everyone needs to be that politician because it is fr frankly not easy. It is a very difficult task, but it's also an honor. But how do we spend some time with intentionality about being engaged and involved. In other words, what do I do every morning or what do I do every day to be interconnected in each other's share of success? And that's fundamentally what it's about. So much of us have focused on just surviving, which I understand is important in the Bay Area. It's difficult just to simply survive. But can we spend an hour or two of my time a week to give back to the community, be a place of worship or to serve at a food bank or whatnot, and or to register people to vote. And there are many organizations, uh, whether or not if Asian Pacific Islander LGBT, whether it be GAPA, to be involved in those organizations or the LGBT Center or serving on a border commission of a city, I think is very important. But if we're not awake, if we haven't been awakened by what you see at the federal administration, um, I don't know what will, um, but let us use this as a learned moment and opportunity. Oh my gosh, that Abercrombie and Fitch, you just... You, you know, remember. I, I, See, a lot of I members so don't remember. remember. I so remember, and now I'm just like, man. <laughs> like traumatized, you know, uh, traumatized LGBT it's just you remember. API. Yes. Yeah, that was so horrible. Any other questions for Evan from our audience? I, I have a question, actually. Um, as I forget it, of course. <laughs> Well, actually, talk. You're you're the head of the LGBT caucus in the state legislature, right? Yes. Talk about the other members of it. What do you folks do? What you know? Who are some of the other leaders? Obviously, we all know in this area, Scott Weiner. Who are some of the other leaders that uh, you see in there, and uh, what are your goals? I, 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 even as I speak, I sort of get chills when I talk. When you talk about that recognition, and I sort of take it for granted. But yes, uh, I. I have the distinction and honor of being the chair of the LGBT Legislative Caucus. That is the um, group, basically a grouping of LGBT legislators in the state legislature. So out of 120 legislators in the state of California, we have eight openly gay le LGBT legislators, by the way, which is the most in any other state in the nation. So more gay LGBT legislators than any other state in the nation. And if you had asked me when I was young and back in 2004, when I was running, running, uh, proud or being open and saying I'm gay, uh, like that, that is the title, like you are gay. Um, I probably would be very uncomfortable with it and just probably just stayed in my room and not wanted to, to even be that. But now uh, I, I don't hide from it. I'm proud and it is the title. I, and that is my job to be chief gay uh, and representing our, <laughs> uh, how, define every as you will. Um, but our job 
is to get openly LGBT people elected. Mm -hmm. And imagine this. There are many stories, whether it be Carol Migdon or um, Mark Leno here in San Francisco, in which they tell stories how they were the only ones in the legislature. And when you had pro-LGBT legislation on adoption or marriage, you'd have Republican legislators putting up their mic, associating the LGBT community with bestiality or saying that we are abhorrent or putting up the Bible um, and or frankly walking out of the room when an LGBT legislator was talking. This is just within a decade or so time in the state of California in which that would happen. LGBT legislators, that's why I talk about, I, I, I stand on the shoulders of those who have come before me because they were subjected to some really horrible things. Whereas we fast forward to our now, mm -hmm. the, the, the leader of the Senate is a lesbian from San Diego. And so you can imagine what would happen if a Republican did that today. That uh, legislator would probably not have much legislative success in the, in the <laughs> California state legislature. But that's why being present is so important. Absent that, being present, being at the table, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There is meaning and value towards it. And by the way, we're changing hearts and minds because people see they're just like everybody else and a vulnerable just as everybody else. Absolutely. Speaking of caucuses, you also are part of, and I think started, the um, Tech and Innovation Caucus for California. So let's talk about you know, just some work around there. Yeah, my district is Silicon Valley, and the, the, the challenge that we're at now is what we've referred to as the future of work. So what do we do when you have autonomous vehicles that are replacing truck drivers or how we have normal delivery, or drones replacing security guards? Mm -hmm or that of hotel workers and Airbnb, and not, not necessarily paying in terms of the same framework uh, on taxes uh, to localities, or how many people still have landlines? Um, vast majority, 95% of households in the state don't have landlines. 95%? 95%. Wow. And so when you take away from the copper wire, you, now you don't have individuals that are going to these centers and maintaining those lines because you have broadband and other connectivity. So the retraining of skill sets mm -hmm. is very important. And so what is the state of California doing to address the technology that exists, but also having the protections and the, the structure in place for the future of work? And that is a, a very difficult task to be able to do. Yeah, it brought up in my mind, you know, net, this question of net neutrality. And we're kind of in this uh, limbo period, not sure how it impacts. And I know California uh, is a leader in um, resisting, right, the net neutrality decision that the FCC had just changed. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that that also impacts households who may have a lack of technology, if you will, in, in California. Yeah, we have a bill pending in, this, in the state legislature now to address that, to make sure that we uh, provide the same type of Obama regulations and rules uh, for the average consumer. And at the same time, not everyone in the state of California uh, has access. And in fact, California is very, ha we have a lot of issues and challenges. Of course, we're, we're talking technology here, but look at the wildfires that are happening. This is a constant, this is a continuum. Yeah. And so how do we not talk about the issues of climate change as a real reality that Californians are facing every day. And it is much more difficult to get connectivity in these other regions. So these are topics of conversations that make sure that we have the technologies, not just for the Bay Area and our major metropolitan areas, but throughout the vast entirety of the state of California, which, by the way, is the fifth largest economy in the world now. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have vast differences in the industries that we have in the state. I've got to ask, we talk a lot, obviously, about the California Democratic Party and, and what, how, you know, super majorities and everything. Do you think the future of the California Republican Party is Arnold Schwarzenegger or John Cox? <laughs> uh, you, how do you think they're going to evolve? If you actually take a look at voter registration on Democrat or Republican, uh, the gr fastest growing uh, demographic uh, or voters identification is independent or declined to state. Yeah. And uh, that is because there is such a dissatisfaction uh, with those of the, of the party's apparatus. Um, so we are seeing now that a lot of the Republicans are more like the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of more moderate. The, the definition of a Republican in the state of California is very different from Republican in any other area. Yeah. Then again, similarly, a definition of a Democrat in California is very different from a Democrat in um, Arkansas or at other places as well, too. Um, so it's a wide spectrum. And, and unfortunately, it is difficult to, to 
pin, pigeonhole uh, an individual and just saying by a Democrat, there are many shades of Democrats, just that there are many shades of Republicans as well. But again, that's where it goes back to that, that basic connection of humanity yeah. and understanding an individual, not by labels, but as an individual. And that's hopefully how we change hearts and minds. Evan, um, I'm so thankful and so grateful for, for you being here, being part of the program. Um, and I've been sitting here for the last 50 minutes. And if you'll entertain me in my vulnerability here, uh, just fighting with myself whether to ask you about this question. And, and it has to do with, you know, opening up about uh, talking about these private detention centers. And so there, there is an article out there um, in talking about taking right campaign finance money and this rumor or, or not a rumor or a fact of taking money from GEO group. And I wanted to ask you about that. And by no means, I, I, if I walked out of here without asking, I think I would regret it. Uh, but if we're going to actually resist and fight back against these private detention centers, I think hitting them where it hurts, um, their financials, right, and, the, and that they can't buy politics, that's also a thought or idea. So I'd love to hear from you. And it's totally okay if you want to say, hey, it's a complex issue and I'm not ready to talk about it. Uh, but what I'm referring to is, yes, taking uh, campaign contributions from companies like GEO Group. Yes, and the, so the context for the listeners and the readers is that uh, there was an article that talked about campaign contributions coming from a, a prison contractor uh, referred to as GEO Group and um, other politicians who have received uh, such campaign contributions. And what does that mean? And what is the uh, perception oftentimes is reality? And so uh, when I found out about that article, I said to myself, who is GEO Group? Because I wasn't even familiar with this, with this entity. And this campaign contribution happened back in 2016. And uh, when I found found out about the campaign contribution and the entity, I said, this is inconsistent with my values and have donated the resources towards Asian Americans for Community Involvement. Uh, that is a nonprofit in the Bay Area that focuses on survivors of torture and immigration. Um, so that there is that. But I also think there's a distinction by looking at individuals' voting record. In other words, the, our democracy and campaigns are run by public donations, uh, donations that are transparent and publicly disclosed. And so the question really should be, for example, on this case, uh, it, where is the campaign contributions coming from? And then what is the voting record of that public official? And if there's consistency there, there's distinction. But if, for example, I accept campaign contributions from the NRA, but I'm consistently voting against them, and I have a F minus from the NRA, is that, is that considered okay? Or is perception reality that, you know what, we just want absolutism and nothing to do with them? So I think that is also a part of the, the conversation that should be had that gets lost in it. And then finally, what is done with the campaign contribution? In other words, what do politicians raise money for? And that is also public. So we raise money to get more Democrats elected so that we have super majorities in the state of California so that we can pass the policies that we believe in. But I would just caution readers and just average individuals by looking at campaign contributions as a nefarious thing. In other words, the reality is that campaigns cost money. Right. And we, it's important to, to look at that. But the reality should be, let us do that much the next step of work by saying, where's the campaign contribution coming from? And then what is the voting record with respect to that entity? And then is there an association related to that? And then asking that public official accordingly so that there is complete sense of accountability and transparency in this process. So I use this simile as a learned moment to say, okay, while my voting record does not reflect that of this entity, Perception oftentimes is reality. Mm -hmm. And so how do you articulate that accordingly? Which is why I also contributed back that donation uh, to nonprofit, uh, just like uh, 25 other legislators right. have done. So again, this is about a, a movement. And what do we expect from our public officials? And oftentimes there's a higher threshold and higher bar for that. Oh, thank you so much for that. I mean, hey, look, this show is funded by corporations that sometimes I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, so I, I completely understand that. And so the question really was by no means, you know, criticism, but just a, a learning mm -hmm. a situation. And I'm so relieved. I think I'm so relieved. I'm, I'm, I'm going to celebrate and have sex or something. Tonight. That was just so wonderful. I was like this, you know, because there's so much respect for, for you, Evan, and being an inspiration for even, you know, myself um, in doing this, this kind of work and asking these types of questions. John, any other questions before we let Evan do real? Yeah, I'm not trying real... to top that, however. Um, <laughs> one question I was going to ask you was kind of like, how does the 28th, is that the district? How does that district maybe differ from others? You kind of got into that when you were talking about the technology, Silicon Valley. Are there other ways in terms of 
it, does it have a higher than normal immigrant population? I mean, what are some of the other distinctions about your district? How do you go about serving them? Well, you think about uh, the companies that exist, Apple or Netflix and eBay, um, and you talk about the workforce. Um, mm. Just think about the, ch the, this is what I w w wake up and think about and, and lose sleep at night for, which is that we're setting up Californians for failure, not for success. When you talk about the social contract of young people getting the skill sets to become productive members of society by getting educated. Well, when you have only 10%, 10 of students graduating within four years at San Jose State University, mm -hmm. only 10%. So now they're five years. And by the way, tuition from 1960, which almost is essentially free because of the California Higher Education Master Plan to where we are today, students are graduating with debt. And then talk about rent, even working, making six figures very difficult to live in the Bay Area. So how are we as a state setting up individuals for success when in previous generations, like my grandparents, worked two jobs, worked in a cannery and worked part-time at a Chinese restaurant as a busser. That was sufficient income to put four children through school and to save up for a home. You can't do that today. That's not the California American dream. So again, it's our obligation to advance the interest and identify how we make systemic changes for these things. So we can celebrate the successes and the riches. Many other states and many other communities would die to have Apple in their jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. But there are also other unintended consequences and associated impacts that we need to make corrective changes. And that's where we need to make sure that we are holding all parties accountable to address these issues. Well, and when you do that, when you meet with other legislators and try to get things their districts might be very, very different from this Shangri-La that, that we kind of live, this uber expensive Shangri-La we live in. Um, is it diff I remember this coming up in a discussion back when um, there, there was housing, well, I mean, there still is housing problems, but I mean, there, were, there was legislation that was trying to get through, con to, through Sacramento, dealing with housing things that we definitely have here in, in San Francisco, our problems. And some, uh, some commentator was pointing out, yeah, that's not necessarily how it is in other parts of the state. So making that argument that we need this statewide law to deal with this problem here in San Francisco and, you know, in some other more rural or smaller, more spread out city, they might be thinking, I don't need this law. Do you ever have that dis find that disconnect with legislators from other parts of the state? Yes. I mean, the limited resources, we talk about the state of California and our, the Bay Area delegation talking about issues of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And of course, with policy changes, then do we have the resources to develop to that? But in other parts of the state, they may say, no, we don't want resources to go to affordable housing because that's not necessarily an issue to us. But we might say, let's say wildfires or infrastructure or connectivity or broadband, whatever the issues might be. So it is a difficult balance. But again, that's why understanding legislators and their motivations in their districts is very important so that you can try to help where you can yeah. such that then they can sacrifice perhaps of themselves to say, we're going to also support you in other ways. So are you going to like a lot of redneck bars now with legislators? <laughs> I try to limit those as much as possible. <laughs> I'll just say, I, I think I'm going to do that. No. Um, well, we're going to let you go because you have very important work to do, but I do have one last question. And what does, uh, you know, when you're not assembly member, Evan Lowe, um, what does Evan do when he lets her hair, his hair down? <laughs> When she lets her hair down. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do you like? What do you do? What do you do for fun when you don't need to be assembly member of love? I know it sounds like a very political answer, but um, th this job uh, I very much love and appreciate. This is, this is, this is a calling, and uh, um, I don't feel like this is a job. This is just something that I would be doing anyway. And so I'm such a fortunate individual to be able to do things that I'm very passionate and I love to do. No, I'm not going to let you off the hook. No. Okay, fine. What about your favorite TV show? I don't watch TV. <laughs> Say the Michelle Miao show. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the Michelle Miao show. There you go. <laughs> okay, I've got a question. John's good safe. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question. So you were a really young city council member. You were a really young uh, mayor. You are a really young state legislator. And how old are you? Uh, 35 now. So you actually could be running for president. You're old enough constitutionally. Um, so what's your campaign slogan going to be for 2020? You really must not like me if you want to subject me to the <laughs> same things that the, the federal government you, you get subjected to. Um, when I ran for office, uh, where I know not office, when I ran for a student body vice president when I was in school, the slogan was aim high, get low. And so anyway, that's kind of our, our <laughs> Oh, wow. I and love I, that. I'm it actually was, it actually was aim high, get low, vote for Evan Lowe. But then other students said, uh, aim high, get high. Uh, and then vote for Evan Lowe. And so they sort of twisted it a little bit too. But you know, <laughs> on that note, 
Thank you, Evan. Thank you so much for joining us here on this program. Uh, true leader and true and genuine and probably one of the most authentic, you. you know, political leaders that we have today. So we're very lucky to have you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you. Uh, hopefully you'll come back again. The Michelle Miao Show tapes here on Thursdays at noon at the Commonwealth Club. For everything else, you can head to michellemiao.com. Um, there's there are TV episodes that we now air on KBCW, and the program airs daily uh, on Progressive Voices Network, the radio program. So thank you. Thank you very much. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com.